but then we started getting emails and Facebook posts and reviews on the App Store, all from blind or low vision players basically saying, hey, I read you know the description of this game and you said it was an audio game and so I bought it and I can't play it because it's got too many pictures. You know, what can we do? Um, and that was very important. They didn't say, what can you do? Or why did you do this? Or, you know, anything like that. They said, what can we do? Um, just right from the beginning, you know, offering implicitly support. When you make something, you're not ever going to be completely sure how people are going to take to it. Uh, when Psychic Bunny raised money during the Kickstarter beta back in 2009 for an audio-only, or I guess audio-focused adventure called Freak uh, that came out earlier this year, you know they just intended to make something that uh, took advantage of the ubiquity of headphones and Apple devices. They wanted to make something that was auditory. Uh, when they released the game earlier this year, uh, they didn't imagine that they would get such a big response from the low vision and blind community that had bought the game thinking it would be for them because it was an audio-focused adventure. You do actually need to be using some of the visual elements to play the game, but once there were enough people asking for it, the folks over at Psychic Bunny thought, you know what, maybe there's a way we can make this work. So I sat down and uh, chatted with uh, Jesse Vigil, the designer, and uh, the producer, uh, Juliana Hughes, uh, about what they did to work with this very specific community uh, to make their game work for blind and low vision players. Here's our conversation. Why don't we start by having you guys just, could you guys just uh, sort of uh, introduce yourselves and maybe talk a little bit about uh, the company and, and what your aims are before we get into Freak? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm Jesse. Uh, v Hill. I am uh, one of the principals at Psychic Bunny. We started the company about 10 years ago, and uh, I'll go ahead and do the background and then let Diana introduce herself. Um, so Psychic Bunny is a, a multidisciplinary creative company. We, we are, we're just content people. We, we make things for all kinds of screens, the ones that exist and the ones that we, we hope will exist sometime soon. Um, so we tend to do, we do film, television, animation, games, and then a lot of things that uh, blur those lines somewhere in between, and we are halfway a work for hire company. A lot of the stuff that we um, do work for hire is for universities. Uh, we do some military stuff uh, in the training and serious games capacity, and uh, and then the rest of the time uh, we sort of do our own like our own projects or our own IPs that we care about. So we do we do feature films, we do short animations, three D movies, and uh, games like Freak actually. Uh, um, and I'm Diana Hughes. I am the senior producer here at Psychic Bunny, so I do production and game design. I'm more interactive focused than uh, film. So the, the reason that uh, you know Freak caught my attention was, uh, you know, it sounds like reading the Gamma Sutra post, uh, Diana, that you put together uh, was, you know, a surprise to you too. Was just seeing how many people uh, actually gravitated towards Freak uh, who were. You know, part of this very specific community that has very specific needs. So, uh, I wonder if you could could set up what Freak is a little bit, and then how you came to learn about you know this community that was reaching out and and wanted to work with you guys to see if you could you know make the game a little more uh, palatable to them. Start and finish. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so um, 
I mean, Freaks had a sort of a, a long and um, a difficult development. It was, um, you know, born out of a uh, a desire when when touchscreen devices, um, and specifically, you know, iPods and iPod touches and iPhones were were first even just sort of hitting the, the scene, and we were seeing that there was a lot of uh, interesting gaming that was going on with them, but. Um, and you know, and the touchscreen was sort of a, a unique device for that. But uh, there were very few things that were taking advantage of the fact that while a pretty good machine to play a game on, it was without a doubt the best personal audio player that you could you could have as a consumer um, in 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 a base sort of price range. So we wanted to do something that would really sort of take advantage of that, and you know, be about listening and uh, you know, experiencing kind of uh, a, a really rich sort of audio landscape. And so that was sort of the the basis of it, you know, take advantage of the fact that the the one peripheral that does ship with every single one of those things is a pair of headphones. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of it, and it was also, you know, born out of a, a love of uh, radio drama and um, a desire to do something, you know, elevate the discourse on branching narrative. And so that's sort of where we began. And we ran a Kickstarter for the project and, and funded successfully um, back in the beta for Kickstarter. And, uh, um, and then took quite a, quite a bit of time to uh, get it around. And we ran into a couple of interesting blocks along the way. Some of them were, um, we could have done a little better with planning, to be totally honest. Uh, some of them were uh, sort of a string of unfortunate incidents that befell the programmers who were working on the projects at various points. Nobody died. Nobody died. <laughs> I was going to say, like, ho hopefully it's not that dark, but, you know. No, no, no. <laughs> no. I mean, one, you know, one kind of vanished. Another one went on kind of a 13-month tour of the world to find herself. Okay. Uh, things like that. But at the end of the day, um, there was also a period of about a year where, I mean, we always sort of intended that the game be very largely, like, um, auditory in nature and there was always sort of the hope that you could play it without looking at the screen at all like i had this idea in particular that you would this was a game that you could play while you were riding the subway without you know necessarily um looking down so much that uh, you weren't being alert to what stop you were on or things like that and uh I, I, that was actually a, a thing that sort of held it back for a while because we were just running into a lot of problems with making that work and be fair or or fun or or balance those gamey sort of bits and so at the there came a point where uh the kickstarter backers became um vocal and uh about about wanting to ever see it out and i think we all started to feel like we had to get it out because um we needed to be able to move on with our lives and and not feel like we had failed and there was a very good solution that did involve uh, uh, a visual interface and some UI and some things that made a lot of sense. And Diana, being a good producer, sort of said, "Let's let's do this. Let's let's finish this." And uh, here are some ways that you could actually you know get it done. So we did, and we released it. And then, so so the game came out in April of this year, so 2013, and. Um, you know, there was some good reviews. We had um, a little bit of press, mostly in the mobile gaming space. And, you know, that was it. And that was about what we expected. It's it's nothing if not a niche game. Um,
but then we started getting emails and Facebook posts and reviews on the App Store, all from blind or low vision players basically saying, hey, I read you know the description of this game and you said it was an audio game and so I bought it and I can't play it because it's got too many pictures. Mm. You know, what can we do? Um, and that was very important. They didn't say, what can you do? Or why did you do this? Or, you know, anything like that. They said, what can we do? Um, just right from the beginning, you know, offering implicitly support. So we, I mean, we, we got kind of a critical mass of those and decided mm -hmm. that this was a thing that, uh, that, that, that needed doing. So, um, yeah, what we came up with was we, you know, we knew that, I mean, basically, like the minute I got, I started getting these emails. I was like, "Well, yeah. I mean, we planned to do this. We planned to do this. We yeah. just couldn't find a way to make it bloody, bloody work." And we decided that we would just ask them. And so we we, we found our uh, we found a group of people, in the, our most vocal critics, and sort of invited them to um, sort of be on, be in on this sort of beta slash exploratory process. Well, we we sort of talked out the problems and. Um, and the proposed solutions that we had, and we very quickly got some feedback back from them, and figured out that there was uh, a solution that made uh, quite a bit of sense um, in a way that had we probably not talked to blind and low vision users, I don't know if we would have arrived at on our own. Oh, definitely not. It was it was them coming to us and saying, you know, we we do play these games a lot. Um, <laughs> we we <laughs> know, know how know you're supposed works. to do this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We know how to play a game without being able, being able to look at a screen, and and ha and, and, yeah. and they told us things like, did you know that there was this that you know Apple has voiceover, and that there's like a whole gesture, there's a separate gestural language for yeah. um, accessibility with it, um, and, and we didn't, and um, it turns out that that gestural language mapped really nicely to how Freak worked, and was meant to work all along. So that began the process of adapting. Mm -hmm. But I know I know read in the in the article that you know the the voiceover stuff doesn't wasn't compatible with Unity, which is what you built uh, the yeah. software in. Um, so so how, how did you just kind of have to hobble together sort of like your own solution to that was essentially replicating what Voiceover did without actually using what was built into the the hardware. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So Voiceover, the way that it works in a normal iOS application is um, there are just little hooks you can put in your iOS code, and Voiceover picks up on those, and then it handles everything for you. Um, and so, because those hooks can't exist in Unity, we basically recreated the front end experience. So this gesture means this, and this gesture means that, um, without any of the back end stuff. So we just ditched Voiceover completely. Um, but in the end, we were pretty happy with that. We had you know, a lot of our user interface stuff was handled for us because Apple's already done all the hard thinking. And what we needed to do then was then adapt it um, for Freak. Um, and, I mean, the player seems to seem to be receiving that very well because they don't have to learn a whole new set of interactions. For people that haven't used it, which is, you know, myself included, like, what are some of these gestures and, and how does that allow someone that, that needs to use that uh, interact with the device in, in a way that, you know, uh, people that don't have vision problems... Uh, you would normally interact. So um, one of the one of the major things, obviously, is that the thing has to read everything to you. So anytime, so the way you play Freak is you 
Oh, so it's literally um, a voiceover, like the the, the, the description yeah, is also yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right, I got you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll it'll read all the buttons to you on the screen. So let's say there's a, a maybe as an example, a drop down menu, right? And so the drop down menu will say choose from one of these options, and uh, literally it says that out loud, and then it will read the first option, and then you can either double tap to select that option or swipe to get to the next item in the list. And the list is circular, so if you get to the end, it comes back around to the first one again. Um, and in Freak, that was perfect because, you know, essentially what you're doing is playing switchboard operator. So it'll say, okay, list of available connections. John, and you can swipe, and it'll say Amy, and you can swipe. And, and so you navigate through the switchboard process that way. It sounds, uh, you know, like the, you guys, you know, obviously had plans to maybe engage with this uh, with Freak, but that, you know, obviously the thing that tipped it over the edge was, you know, people coming together in that community kind of, you know, individually saying it, but by saying it, you know, kind of all at the same time, sort of as one voice, it seems like that community probably moves kind of in a pack. Like when they want something, like they find a way to express it so that those developers know they're, it's not just one person, it's not just two people. Like that's a community of people. And, you know, when you speak louder with one voice, you know, you have a better chance of being heard and having actual action take place. Right. I think, you know, they when they... Um... I mean, the the sad part of it is, at the end of the day, this is a business, and um, we have to, you know, we, we have we have people to pay. And uh, this was not a game that was making so much money that it was justifying any additional work at this point. But there were enough people um, who convinced us that there was actually an entire community of players that not only we didn't know existed, but wanted to like this game very badly, and that was that was impetus enough. I think, mm -hmm. and also, I mean, it, it it jives really well with a lot of things that we're sort of about at Psychic Bunny. We've, like, as I mentioned, we've done a lot of work in our in our day in um, impact games or in serious games and in rehab games. Like, we've done a lot of work uh, doing PTSD therapy for returning warfighters and and things like that. And so there was, um, you know, I mean, we respond well to advocacy and you know, a chance <laughs> to do something for an underserved community is. Uh, is something that you know obviously already already appealed, and then when they be, when they were not only organized but engaged and honestly the most courteous and um, yeah <laughs> just gosh darn nice group of video game players that I've ever encountered in like ten ten years of doing this, uh, it, it made it even easier. Did, did you find by going through the process of uh, sort of finding a way to, to tweak the game and its interface for uh, these very specific needs that it actually, like, did you come up with any lessons that would actually inform, you know, how you make games for people who aren't, you know, visually impaired? Like, was, by going through this process, did it illuminate things that you didn't even know about the design of the game already? Yes, yes, to a, um, in, in several ways. I was, um, I was gifted enough that very early on in my design career, I was working with a programmer um, who was colorblind, and so he would just constantly uh, yell at me. He would say, "Like you stupid moron! I can't tell the difference between these two assets. What are you doing?" <laughs> That's and, I, I have two coworkers that uh, are colorblind as well. So our site, Giant Bomb, is like probably like the most representative of the colorblind gaming editorial community. So we are constantly <laughs> asking questions about that, and it's actually been nice to see that more and more games, like you know, like Call of Duty and stuff like that you know, incorporate that from, from the get-go, but it has yeah. been a long time coming. Yeah, so, I mean, I was lucky enough that, you know, very, like, I had my wrist slapped instantly, like, mm -hmm. the very, the very <laughs> beginning of my design career, 
Um, and so I'm like hypersensitive to it now. And I think in the same sort of way, um, you know, on a, on a very general like level as, as designers, I think it has changed um, how we look at the kinds of things that we do. And not, while not everything is possible to, you know, completely strip visuals out of and, and have it be 100% playable, we've become a lot more sensitive to that sort of experience. One of our testers, when we were talking about the game with him, and he was saying some very complimentary things. He's like, you know what, I think the story and the, all of this stuff is you know, so much better than The Last of Us. And we had a moment where we stopped and we said, well, how are you, how are you, playing, yeah. the, how are you playing The Last of Us? I mean, I don't want to be indelicate, but can you explain? And he's like, oh, my sighted partner plays the game while I, while I sit and I listen. And that was sort of stunning. But then what he was saying was, you know, we t you know in, in the sighted community, we, you know, we talk a lot about you know that game gets praised a lot for you know its excellence in writing and storytelling and, and world building and world building and all of this stuff and he had a lot of things to say about it in terms of like it being not very well written because from his perspective he could see very nakedly that there's a lot of dialogue and talking that happens in that game and a lot of games like it while while a person is traversing a large tedious landscape and this is just sort of filling the time and when you can't see the large landscape Mm -hmm. or any of the traversing, and you're just listening to kind of inane chatter about whether or not somebody left something in the refrigerator or not, it, it exposes it in an interesting way. And so as, you know, as a writer and a designer, I've, I've become suddenly a lot more sensitive to, mm -hmm. am I talking too much? Are we not actually doing anything interesting right now? Or are we just yep. letting it go on and on? <laughs> and, and so I think you know, in that way, but also in, in a more specific way with Freak, um, I've been saying that uh, playing in accessibility mode with my sight is a lot like playing expert mode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now uh, it's funny how used you get when you have when you have your vision, you get kind of lazy with your ears, and having to find all of the hidden nodes in the game and make the make the precise little tunings when all you've got to rely on is your ear and how close you think something is based on how loud it is or where it is in the 360 degree soundscape, then all of a sudden it, uh, it, it's a lot harder than when you have the visual guides to, to sort of help you. So um, when we were testing it and when we were showing the accessibility mode initially, um, we had a lot of trouble trying to figure out, and thank God we had uh, low vision players helping us to determine, like, is this too hard? Like, yeah, or is that might, just us? It might not be too hard. Like, should we make it, should we make the, like, all the hot zones a little bit bigger when you're just listening to it? Like, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, uh, a feature I was kicking around for a while and just never got around to writing, um, and maybe this is going to be the impetus to revisit it, is, uh, is actually how much those, uh, those communities find ways to play games that have zero accessibility options, but find ways to play them yep. anyway. There's there's a guy, uh, man, his name escapes me, but he, he's famous for. There's a bunch of videos of him on YouTube um, where he is completely blind, and yet you know he can finish you know Ocarina of Time or like these other big 3D exploration games. He's just gotten so good at memorizing them using walkthroughs and then using purely the sound design, even though the sound isn't designed to help him necessarily navigate the world, but the design is such that he can get through uh, the game in a way that just, you know, is obviously never designed to. And it's, it's just really fascinating. Yeah, I've, I've heard of some stuff like that. I mean, some of the guys that we were talking to had mentioned, yeah, you know, we play more of these games than you think we do. We're just missing some of it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, you know, 
how does this change your your thinking going forward? Having you know, it's one thing to say you want to engage with these communities. It's quite another to actually go through, have it have done the thing, and then you know, obviously you're going to move on to other projects. I saw you guys were uh, raising money for uh, another game on Kickstarter. Like, how does this change your thinking going forward? Because obviously you can't you know necessarily account for it every time in such a meaningful way because it is a business. But I have to imagine it influences how you design your stuff going forward. Absolutely. Um, one, I mean. I think, at least for me, it has opened my eyes to there are so many underserved communities. It's not just blind and low vision players, although obviously they're near and dear to our hearts. But, you know, as we, you know, discussed a little while ago, there's colorblind, there's, you know, maybe your manual dexterity isn't very good, and so a modern gaming controller would be a hassle for you. Um, There are all kinds of things that uh, games take for granted that maybe we should be designing a little more openly. I think even audience-wise, too. So oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's sort of, I think, going forward, I mean, there are a multitude of different design decisions that you can make that cuts out a group of people that might enjoy the game, except for this one thing. And so I think, you know, it, what it's done is it's made us think long and hard about, um, are, are, like, does this decision that we're making um, do anything that really helps the game, or is this something that doesn't add anything but definitely would turn off a group of people or make this something that a group of people who otherwise would enjoy playing the game make them not interested or, you know, have a bad time with it? Yep. So, uh, you know, before we uh, close out, can you guys, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that, the, the game that you're, you're raising money for on Kickstarter? What are, you, what are you guys working on right now? Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, So Batonk is actually, uh, it's a game that we made um, because we wanted to do something cool with, um, you know, second screen and also um, basically make like a game for the living room that, you know, sort of harkens back to when we were kids and we were playing games, like not not even necessarily digital games, but games like with the family or with our friends over where there was a lot of hilarity and shouting. So Batonk is a game that... uh, was always meant to be digital, but we built a a giant human-sized prototype of the game. It's all about playing this card game to um, take control of these three robots on the field that move around and obey commands that you send them if you make pairs or combos and uh, and, and and throw those cards. So the um, to prototype this game and see whether or not it was actually going to work. Uh, we put um, myself and the other principals of the company, um, made them be the robots and let the employees play the game and shout commands at us to send us over a giant office-sized uh, playing field to try to score these goals. And it was so fun that we um, submitted the game and we've taken it to festivals. We were at IndieCade in Culver City and we were up at Come Out and Play San Francisco last month. And it really encouraged us, so we started building the full-on digital game. So the hand of cards is on your own touchscreen device. And uh, it's format agnostic, so it goes with you wherever you go to whatever console or living room screen and whatever room you happen to be in is hosting the game. You've got your controller already in your pocket, and it keeps track of your, your record and your, and your stats, and you can just jump in and play. Well, and to bring it back to accessibility a little bit, I mean, one of the things that we like about it is because it's, it's based on a card game, so there's a sort of a familiar format there. Um, but the controller is whatever your touchscreen device is you know, your smartphone, your tablet. So there's a little bit less of a barrier to entry there for someone who maybe is a little intimidated because it's like, well, do you already understand your smartphone? Okay, well, you can probably figure this out. It's very easy. Um, 
And you don't need to have the console that your your friend has or yeah, or, or someone no, else, or yep. you know, and you don't need to own four controllers for the two times that your friends are going to come over and play. So we're trying to you know also make something that's a little economically sensitive too. Yep. Cool. Well, I uh, appreciate you guys taking a couple minutes to chat with me about Freak and uh, the new stuff. Sounds interesting too. But uh, yeah, you know, good on you guys for for uh, for reaching out to that community. That's a, that's a really cool thing that you guys did. Well, Thank thanks you. For, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care and uh, good luck uh, with the rest of your Kickstarter. I know I've talked to many a Kickstarter project runners, and I, I know how stressful that stuff can be. So good luck to you guys. It is appreciated. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> Take care. Okay, <laughs> bye-bye. bye-bye.